everyone. The scripture for today is out of 1 Samuel, chapters 21, verses 1 through 15. Then David came to, to Nob of Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women... And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said, Ahimelech, then have you not, or have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the, Lord, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none, there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took those words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in, his, in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spirit run down, or let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Let's pray. Father God, you are great and worthy to be praised. There is literally nothing that comes close to how great you are. There is nothing to compare you to. You are above all because you created all. We can't even fully comprehend you, much less think of something to compare you to. That's how great and awesome you truly are. Father, thank you for blessing us here at North Shore Church with the opportunity to get together and to worship you together, even though it looks a little bit different than we're used to. Help us to need you above everything else, and help us to love you ahead of everything else, especially when things get uncomfortable. Father, a lot of us, I'm sure, are getting tired of these restrictions placed on us because of this pandemic. 
I'm sure that most of us would love for things to go back to the way they were when we could go and do as we liked. But Father, please remind us now and often that you are in control of everything, that nothing happens without your say-so, that all things are held together by you and because of you, held together by your will, and that at the very core, our reality exists just because it delights you. We don't know exactly why you are allowing this virus to do what it is doing, but we proclaim right now that we trust you, Father. We trust that everything you do is good and perfect, even if it doesn't make sense to us right now. We will continue to proclaim that you are sovereign and that you are Lord over all. We will sing praises to you and to worship you and to love you and others the way that Jesus has taught us to do. Thank you, Father. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Let me pray. Our Father and God, so grateful for your word, a lamp to our feet. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would work in me, through me, help me, and God, that Jesus Christ would be magnified, exalted, and made much of. God, make that happen as a result of your word today. May it be your word for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Well, as you just heard, we're continuing on in 1 Samuel as we look through this life of the King, King David. If you noticed, we skipped chapter 20. There's no agenda behind that. It's not that there's anything particularly objectionable in that chapter. Simply, we're not here to give an exhaustive treatment of all the biblical data on David. The goal is to see what God can teach us through the life of David, and that means that some of the passages where the main message is also seen elsewhere in David's life, we're going to bypass that. And so we'll be looking into the passage today that we trust will enable us to receive a more well-rounded understanding of David and God's dealings with him. Just to give you a little bit of a context, up to this point, King Saul has decided that he's going to eliminate David because he wrongly views him as a malicious threat to his dynasty. And at this point, Saul's out in the open with his hatred for David. He's telling even people that he knew were very supportive and loyal to David that he intends to kill David. And that includes his son, Jonathan, who loves David and is frankly more loyal to David than he is to Saul, his father. And in chapter 20, which again we didn't read, Saul is so angry about his son's loyalty to David that he hurls a spear at him just like he had done a couple times with David. Saul orders Jonathan to bring Saul, or to bring, excuse me, to bring David to him so that he can kill him. Saul orders him to do that, and in response, Jonathan secretly meets with David to tell him that it's all over, that he has to leave the king's palace now for his own safety. And in so doing, David here begins more than a decade of life as a fugitive on the run from King Saul. So when we meet David in chapter 21, as Brian was reading, he's on the run. And he makes his first stop here in the city of Nob, which is about 20 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And there he meets this Ahimelech, who's a priest. And that wouldn't have been unusual to meet a priest in Nob because Nob was a collection of priests. It was known as the city of priests. And we'll see next chapter that there were more than 80 priests living in Nob. 
This is probably where the tabernacle was set up at this time. It doesn't say that, but it's probably where it was. And that's where these loaves of bread, or the holy bread, are resting. These were 12 large loaves of bread that by the law of Moses was stipulated that they had to be in the tabernacle. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? This chapter is divided by encounters that David has with two men, both of whom he's seeking help from. First, in verses 1 through 9, we see David with Ahimelech at Nob. Next, David meets with a Philistine named Achish, the king of Gath. But first, let's look at David with Ahimelech at Nob. We are not sure why David, on the run from Saul, comes to Nob as his first stop. But the chapter reveals that he is in desperate need, even for the most basic supplies. He flees from Saul in such a hurry that he has nothing, not even food. Now, when he arrives at Nob, he meets this Ahimelech character, who we know from the next chapter is the brother of Ahijah. And that's important because Ahijah was part of Saul's inner circle. He was the king's main spiritual advisor. We might call him his chaplain. So David would have known this because he'd been part of the king's court, and that would have made him at least a little bit suspicious of Ahimelech. He probably assumes that he couldn't trust Ahimelech fully about why he was fleeing from Saul, and so that's why he makes up this story. He says in verse 2, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Okay, that's made up. That's not in chapter 20. That didn't happen. He's making this up. Now, some scholars think that when David says he's on a mission for his king, he's talking about God. Could be true. But it's a stretch, because even if David is talking about God and not Saul, his intention is still to deceive Ahimelech into thinking that he's on a mission and not on the run, okay? David asks what the priest has on hand, which may seem a little bit cheeky to us. David is showing up, sees a stranger, probably hadn't met this guy before, and asks him for food. It actually wasn't at all inappropriate. If you go to the Middle East, even today, it's perfectly appropriate. If you need food, you can go into anybody's house and say, excuse me, I need you to feed me now. Okay, that's true even today. It was certainly true back then. So this wasn't inappropriate or unusual. You ate where you could find food, and the person who you ask is bound by the, 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 the rules of hospitality to give you something. So David asks Ahimelech for five loaves of bread or whatever is free. Now, five loaves of bread would have fed two, maybe three people, given the size of a normal loaf of bread. So this is not a huge request from a man who claimed that he was going to be meeting with his men later on. He's on a military mission, obviously, because that's what David did. He's a, a warrior, okay? The information in verses 4 through 6 would normally be of not really any significance to us. They simply recount Ahimelech's rather resourceful efforts to supply David with his food. What makes them important to believers is that Jesus cites these very verses in three of the four Gospels as an example of how to mercifully apply the law of God. Verse 4 begins, And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. Now we need to know something about this bread. 
This is the holy bread. It's also called the bread of the presence. It was 12 large loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They were put out in this tabernacle right next to, not in, but right next to the most holy place. They were in the, the holy place. They weren't in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments was located, but they were right next to that. These loaves were also sometimes called the showbread, if you go to the King James, or the continual bread. And the reason they were called the continual bread in one place is because they were a continual worship offering of food to Yahweh. Worshiping God through offering him food was one of the ways that you worshiped Yahweh. These were considered holy because they were so close to the most holy place where Yahweh's presence dwelled. That's why they're called the bread of the presence. New loaves were baked each week and replaced the old loaves on the Sabbath. And the law says in Leviticus 24 that once the old loaves are removed, the only people that could eat those loaves were priests. That's clear. So if Ahimelech would have interpreted the law in a rigid, literal way, he would have turned away a hungry David with something like, I'm sorry, David, I can see you're famished, but this bread is only for priests. Now, it's not as if Ahimelech had to remove bread from the holy place, because in verse 6, it seems to be saying that it already had been removed, okay? So the dilemma for Ahimelech is he can either follow the letter of the law and send David away famished, or he can technically break the law, but feed a famished David with holy bread. And Ahimelech comes up with what is a very wise solution. On the one hand, he does have compassion for David, who is hungry. And so he gives him the bread, which would have been enough to feed him and a number of other people. On the other hand, he recognizes that this is holy bread by requiring that David and his men be ceremonially clean in order to eat it. So he touches on both of these things. That solution allows him to show mercy to David, while at the same time recognizing that this is not normal bread. It's holy bread. Now Jesus uses that act of Ahimelech to teach the Pharisees something about the law. One of three places that he talks to the Pharisees about this is in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees, as usual, were upset with Jesus. This time, they were upset with Jesus because they saw his disciples were picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath. Okay? It was legal to pick grain and eat it. You could do that. That was part of the way they fed the underclass. You couldn't do it on the Sabbath, at least according to the way that the Pharisees interpreted the Sabbath laws. That was against their rigid, merciless understanding of those laws. And so Jesus answered their objection to his disciples eating this picked grain by saying, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those were present with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Case. He lays it out there, doesn't he? In verse 7, he explains how this situation applies to the Pharisees' objection to the disciples picking and eating grain on the Sabbath. And he does that by citing another Old Testament text that he implies should have guided the Pharisees in how to interpret that law in Leviticus 24. And so as he's talking to them, he cites Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And he said, And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice, that's from Hosea 6, you would not have condemned the guiltless. 
for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out that the Pharisees' rigid understanding of the Sabbath laws had not been informed by the whole law of God's law. That's what he's saying. You have to interpret the Sabbath law through the law of Hosea chapter 6 when you're dealing with hungry people. That's what Jesus' point is. Okay? And it had obscured a much more important biblical priority than strict Sabbath-keeping, which is showing mercy to those who are hungry. He also uses this occasion to communicate that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, not them. Okay? That means that his interpretation of the Sabbath laws was binding and authoritative, not theirs. And the implication is that as the Lord of the Sabbath, he had already ruled that it was fine for the disciples to pick and eat grain on the Sabbath, and his ruling was standing. Okay? No wonder why they wanted to kill him. Okay? So getting back to 1 Samuel, Ahimelech stipulates that David's men, who he claimed to be meeting later, and we're not sure if that's true or not, must be ceremonially clean by not having slept with any woman in the last 24 hours. That's the law. Okay? That requirement comes from Leviticus 15. And David assures Ahimelech in verse 5, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today when their vessels will be holy? This is really interesting because it reinforces what we've seen before about how God and his people viewed warfare. This requirement for the men to be ceremonially clean meant that they considered warfare to be a holy pursuit. Okay? That's why they needed to be consecrated or made clean. Any legitimate war waged by God and his people was a holy war in the sense that the Old Testament teaches, as we've seen before, that these wars were really fought by Yahweh against his enemies through the Jewish army. So because warfare is executing a holy mission from God, his warriors needed to be ceremonially clean according to the law. David recognizes this, and so he assures Ahimelech that the vessels will be holy. Uriah the Hittite exemplifies this attitude toward warfare later on in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You recall the story. King David calls Uriah home from the front battle lines in the hope that he will sleep with his wife Bathsheba, who was then pregnant by David. David wanted Uriah to be pregnant with Bathsheba in order to explain her still-conceived pregnancy. Okay? Even though David gets Uriah drunk to try to weaken his resolve, Uriah remains ceremonially clean by not going into his wife. Okay? Uriah understood that as a warrior for the God of Israel, he was on a holy mission, and he needed to be consecrated to God. That story also shows us, now that you understand why he did that, how David's being really bad, because he's asking Uriah to violate himself and then go fight. Okay? In chapter 21, verse 7, the author reports that a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, the only reason this detail is here is because of the disaster that's recorded in the next chapter that relates to this man being present when Himelech helps David. Okay, so later on, we'll see why it's here. In verse 8, David makes his second request to this priest. He said, then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have been, 
For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Okay, this story of David gets fishier and fishier the more he adds to it, which is what happens in a lie. The more you add to it, the worse it gets. Earlier, he had told Ahimelech that he is on a secret mission, and that would have been a military mission because he was a commander of the army. He's on a mission from the king, and that these young men, these warriors, are waiting for him at a secret location. But here, he tells this priest that because of the haste required by the king's business, which was a military mission, he failed to bring any weapons with him. Okay? Probably not likely when you're on a military mission to leave your weapons at home. Okay? It tells us at the very least that David's not a very good liar, which is probably a good thing. We do need to address the multiple deceptions of David in this chapter. Because in addition to these two lies related to his food and his need for weapons, we see another deception when he pretends to be insane before King Achish. So you need to ask, the elephant standing in the room when you read this text is, what are we supposed to make about David's lying here? I mean, you just don't read over that and assume somehow it must be okay because it's David. David wasn't exempt from the ninth commandment. So you need to ask. With the two lies here, uh, he's in desperation and he's fearful. And what he's doing in the first situation with Ahimelech is he's simply acting out of his sinful fallen nature. Think about it. Put yourself in his place. He's afraid of Saul. He's running for his life. He has no food. He has no weapons. He, he's not sure whether he can trust Ahimelech. He's feeling very vulnerable and exposed. He's in a very tough spot, and he lies. The interesting thing, of course, which we'll look more at later, is that God in his mercy chooses to honor or at least overlook his deception even through his lies, and he supplies his food and his weapons to him, which teaches us something important. Now, that does not mean that God approves of lies, okay? That's not the point here. In Hebrew narrative, frequently the characters do sinful things without comment by the author on the morality of the situation, okay? For instance, let's take David's sin with Bathsheba. The author introduces that section with this statement. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, the author makes no explicit comment on David's disastrous decision to remain in Jerusalem. But from the rest of the story, we know this was what kicked off this wretched chain of events involving Bathsheba. And the clear implication from the author is David should have been out on his battlefield with his men. But it doesn't explicitly say that. The reason is because Hebrew narrative often uses the horrible consequences of a decision to point out how sinful it was. And that's the case with David. Another example of this is the Old Testament's treatment of polygamy, having more than one wife. Some people read through the Old Testament and wonder why it doesn't explicitly condemn polygamy. Okay? But in most instances where the story indicates that a man has more than one wife, the results are always disastrous. It's always a terrible thing. Okay? 
And that's the Holy Spirit's implicit way of communicating God's hatred of polygamy. You have to know how to read the stories. Here in our story for this morning, we're not explicitly told that David's lying is sinful, but he had the ninth commandment against bearing false witness, right? Had David taken a moment to reflect on things a bit, instead of acting just out of his fear, he could have made a better decision here. Which, I mean, I'm not saying I would have. I would have done the same thing, but, you know, Monday morning quarterback, we can look back and see how he could have done better. As he does later in chapter 23, where he'd learned something by this point, he could have in some way consulted the Lord and asked him if this person in Nob, Ahimelech, that he's about to ask something with, if he could be trusted. If the answer was, yes, you can trust him, then he could have been honest with Ahimelech about why he was going away from Saul. If the answer was no, then he could have trusted God to provide him food from someone else. He does that kind of thing in chapter 23 and in other places. He doesn't do it here. Because David is a fallen human being. He's fearing for his life, feeling alone and vulnerable. He's hungry, he has no defenses, and so he lies. The fact that God uses his lies to supply his need, again, doesn't mean that God is blessing his deception. This is not a license to sin, but he knows that we're weak and we're frail. Psalm 103 says he knows that we are dust. Again, not an excuse for sin, but a realization God knows we're fallen and we're sinful. The deception he conceives with Achish is in this second encounter where he's seeking David's help, and that is David with Achish at Gath. Now, when, why David fled to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword, <laughs> is not known. This doesn't seem like an intuitive choice, okay? He could have thought that he wasn't going to be recognized, which we know is intensely naive, if that was what he was thinking. It could have been that he thought he could pretend that he was deserting Saul to join the Philistines. He actually does that with Achish in chapter 27. We don't know. Whatever his reasons, it ended up being a foolish decision to try to get help from the king of the Philistines, many of whom he'd personally killed. Okay? Instead of not being recognized by the Philistines, the servants of the king very quickly identified David as the warrior who had struck down his ten thousands. David understands that the jig is up at this point, and that any hopes he had of receiving any help from Achish are dashed at this point. And so he goes from seeking help to seeking deliverance from Achish, because in verse 13 it says that he was in their hands, which means they had at this point taken him captive. So David resorts to another deception. Verse 13 said, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. He must have given a convincing performance because not only is the king not anxious to detain David, he sarcastically asks in verse 15, do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? To come into my house means to in some way join my retinue and be my servant. Now, it's important to know why this deception is different, the one David pulls with Ahimelech, and it's different. So we're going to get into a little bit of the biblical ethic of lying here, because it's important. King Achish is a Philistine, an enemy of the Jews, and Israel was at war with him and his armies. 
And the Bible illustrates the ethics of deception have changed a bit when you're deceiving an acknowledged enemy. War, by its very nature, is deceptive. And God calls his people to go to war. Think about it. What is camouflage? It's a way to deceive your enemy into thinking you're not there when you are there. What is a feint? Well, a feint is an attack on your enemy from one direction in order to deceptively divert attention from another attack coming from another direction. God commanded Joshua to set up just this kind of ambush in chapter 8 of Joshua. Was he lying? Was he deceiving? He wasn't sinning. What are spies? They're enemies who attempt to deceive you into thinking that they're your friends so that they can get information from you. Okay? That God can find a lie acceptable or even appropriate is seen in Exodus chapter 2. You remember the story. The king of Egypt had ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill upon birth any male born to the Jews. The midwives, however, feared God and they disobeyed Pharaoh's order. When Pharaoh confronted them as to why, that he hadn't, why they hadn't killed the babies, they lied. And they said the Jewish women are much more vital than the Egyptian women, and so they give birth before they're able to arrive. A lie. And in chapter 2, verse 20, the author tells us, so God dealt well with the midwives. Okay? Now, to bring it into our own context, when the Dutch Christians were hiding Jews from the Nazis, they deceptively concealed that from the Nazis when they asked them about it. If you're a homeowner and you're going on vacation... You may put your lights on a dimmer switch to automatically go on and off to deceive potential burglars into thinking that you're not away when you are away. Okay, do you get it? I hope you're picking up that the ethics of deception are not as black and white as many would like to think so, especially when you're in the context of war. Okay, that's why a better, more faithful biblical de definition of a lie is the intention to deceive when we are bound to speak or do the truth. When we are bound to speak or do the truth. Do I owe you the truth? In war, the assumption is that you are not ethically bound to tell the truth to someone who's trying to kill you and the people you love. Okay? David was ethically bound to tell the truth to Ahimelech, who was a priest of God. He was not ethically bound to tell his enemy, the king of Gath. So feigning insanity is actually a very clever and appropriate thing for a warrior to do in those circumstances. David's real sin with Achish is not something he did, it's something he didn't do. And that is, again, he didn't consult the Lord to get a word from God as to whether he should go to the king of the of Gath, a Philistine, for help, okay? He could have easily done this. Even if he was just asking somebody else for counsel, they probably would have said, are you sure, David? Doesn't sound like a very good idea. You should certainly do this at any time, but especially in a high-risk strategy, he should have checked in with God. He was foolishly trusting in his own judgment here, and he paid for it. But because of God's mercy, he didn't pay for it like he could have paid for it. He could have been killed. Like so many of these accounts in First and Second Samuel, this is a compelling story. What does it teach us? <laughs> what does it teach us about God, right? That's the question. One thing we learn about God from this story is that because God is full of grace, we should approach him boldly, even as we trust him imperfectly.
We should approach him boldly even as we trust him imperfectly. That describes David here. We must be careful here because we can sound like we're endorsing sin or lawlessness, and that's not the point here at all. But in David, we see a man who lived on a very large scale. God used him greatly. He was regularly placing him in these incredibly high-pressure situations. He has to run for his life from the king of Israel and his army. We haven't experienced that. We're not going to experience. That was David's life for 13 years. And in the midst of this tremendous stress, as God was teaching him to trust him, David blew it sometimes, okay? The Bible is a unique book because it paints its heroes, warts and all, which is a good thing because we often learn more from the warts than we do from the good things, right? In the case of Ahimelech, he lied, okay? In the case of going to Achish, he relied on his own wisdom instead of God's. In the case of Nabal that we'll look at later on, he wrongly sought vengeance. And he frequently became fearful and anxious in the midst of all of his trials. But in the midst of all of that, he was seeking after God. He was living for God. He was learning to trust God. Okay? So when he lies in this situation with Ahimelech, he wasn't blind to that sin. He knew the ninth commandment. His problem wasn't fundamentally the lie. As we said, it was his lack of trust in God. Instead of trusting God, he relied on his own wits. He did the best he could come up with, and that was a lie, okay? Yet in the midst of all of David's mess here, David knew that God was filled with grace and love toward him, and that's what motivated him to boldly cry out to God in the midst of the trials, even in the midst of his sometimes sinful responses to them. He was learning to walk by faith with God, and sometimes he fell down, like everybody does when they're learning to walk. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't sinful. Of course it was. It does mean that David was not doing it out of this in-your-face rebellion like he did with the sin with Bathsheba. Those are two very different kinds of sins. Like last week, this episode gives us a chance to see how David was processing all of this because two psalms are written in response to this situation. The subheading, and the subheadings are not inspired, okay? And they have mistakes in them. And the subheading for Psalm 34 has one of those mistakes. It says of David, when he changed his behavior toward Ahimelech, that should be Achish, right? So that he drove him out and he went away. Psalm 56 was written when the Philistines seized him in Gath, okay? So both of those apply to this situation we've just read. In Psalm 34, just listen to a few verses and hear the supreme confidence that David shows toward God, even in this situation where he is so stressed and makes some bad decisions. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be contemned. That is one of the most beautiful pronouncements of dependence upon God and gratitude to God for his deliverance anywhere in the Bible. David has great confidence in the Lord, even in the wake of his foolishness at Nob, a foolishness that, as we will see, has disastrous consequences. Okay? But in this psalm, he's looking boldly to God. His boast is in God. His praise is for God. His testimony is in God's faithfulness to deliver him. His heart is right toward God. The point for us is many believers never really internalize. And by internalize, I mean believe it up here, but not in here, okay? They never believe in their hearts the glorious reality of God's grace. And David does that here because he prays that glorious psalm in the midst of even making some bad decisions, okay? Some believers are very sensitive. They sin, they blow it. And even though they confess their sin and they feel godly sorrow about it, because of their sin, they remain squeamish about asking God for anything, especially something like deliverance in a hard situation. Because they feel so guilty about their sin, they tend to be sheepish as they approach God in prayer. They're blushing before God. Underneath those feelings of worthiness is in order for God to hear you, in order for God to bless you, in order for God to deliver you, in order for God to delight in you, you need to have kept your nose a whole lot cleaner than you have. That's a lie. That's being enslaved to the law. Many believers fall into that trap, believing that in order for them to receive anything from God, especially big things like deliverance from danger, their performance has to be deserving of that. If that's the case, David failed. Because he lied. Twice. Okay? We forget what Jacob said in Genesis 32.10. He's reflecting on his life after he'd left Esau, because he left. He had to leave. Esau was going to kill him. And God had blessed him incredibly during that whole period. And as he's reflecting on that and coming back home, he confesses to God, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servants. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now I've become two camps. Jacob knew that the reason that God had prostrated him so much wasn't because he had deserved even the smallest part of his blessing. Jacob, as J. Vernon McGee says, was a rascal. Jacob was not a great guy, okay? He knew God's blessing came to him not on the basis of his performance, but because God had chosen him and showed his steadfast love and faithfulness toward him. Jacob got grace. It's so easy for believers to forget that everything we have is undeserved. We don't deserve anything. It's all from grace. We should never live lawlessly, indifferent to our sin, and then expect God's blessing in our rebellion. That's not what David did. If our hearts are sensitive toward God and we confess our sins and feel godly sorrow for them, even in moments immediately following our sin, we should approach the throne of God boldly in prayer. 
This is what Hebrews 4.16 says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay? God's throne is a throne of grace. That's how we have any access to it at all. Because that's true, we should have confidence that his grace is sufficient for us and that we can know his blessing, his protection, his deliverance, even in those moments when we're not doing all of what we should because it's not dependent upon how good we are, it's dependent on how good he is. It's no accident that Psalm 34 is where David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So he knew why God blessed him. It was because God is good. He knew why God delivered him. It was because God is good. Not because he'd handled everything perfectly, because he hadn't. Today, we're still benefiting from God's grace to David. As a result of what he learned in this situation, he gave us one of the most encouraging verses for those who struggle with anxiety and fear in all the Bible in Psalm 56, which again was written in response to this event. He says in verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Okay, you plug that verse, those two verses, into any situation you are facing about the outcome of the election, about the rioting in our streets, about COVID, about a personal struggle. What can domestic terrorists do to me? What can an unfortunate election result do to me? What can a virus do to me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can an angry boss or supervisor do to me? And the answer is nothing, because I'm trusting in God. Okay? If you haven't committed that verse to memory, it can really be helpful when you're given to times of anxiety. And who we are in Christ on this side of the cross gives us even more reason to be confident and bold because we know that Jesus took our sins upon himself on the cross, paid the penalty that we owed because of them. He has cleared away any obstruction in our path to God. And if you're here today and you don't know God, you need to find his forgiveness. You need to trust in him that he will forgive you and that he will make you his own. He will justify you. He will treat you as if you'd never sinned. He will glorify you in the day and he will sanctify you day to day, making you more and more and more like him because he's good. He's faithful. He's a God of steadfast love, not because we're always going to get it right, because we're going to get it wrong a whole lot of the time. May God give us the grace to live before him boldly, trusting in his mercy for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful for the way you are. We're so grateful, God, because we are frail. We're feeble. We're dust. We make bad decisions. We react out of our own flesh. We trust in our own wits and judgment when we should be looking to you. We're a lot like David. God, we're so grateful that your blessing, that your deliverance does not depend on anything approximating a perfect performance from us. God, we know you're holy. We know that this is not about rebellion. It's not about indifference to sin. It's about just living for you, walking with you, and sinning, which we all do. 
God, help those especially who have a really hard time understanding how a God that you just sinned against could be anxious to see you in prayer. Father, that's hard. And, and there's nobody else that we relate to that treats us that way. Nobody. And so God, help us to receive that from you and to believe it for Jesus' sake. And in his name, amen.